if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your host and your guide to the faith, life, and, well, civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Now, for the last number of episodes, we've been in a mini-series about the Eucharist, and I'd love to hear your responses. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, please send me an email to greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Today, I'd like to talk about the reasons why Protestants reject Catholic teachings on the Eucharist. Protestants just flat-out reject the Catholic doctrines of the Eucharist. In fact, there's hardly a dividing line between Catholicism and Protestantism that's more sharp than their relative understandings of the Eucharist. In fact, I might argue that it is the most definitive example of the differences between these two branches of Christianity. For example, Protestants don't accept any of the miracles that we've been describing in this Eucharist series on the podcast. They don't accept the metaphysics of the Mass. They don't accept the miracles of consecration or transubstantiation. They do sort of accept some form of the miracle of communion, but the Eucharist isn't really the mechanism by which that's achieved in their theology, only a, a sign that it has been accomplished. Nor do Protestants accept the Catholic teachings regarding the necessity, the efficacy, the frequency, and the practices of the Eucharist. They absolutely don't accept the practice of Eucharistic adoration. Now, Catholics who do try to explain the Church's teachings on the Eucharist to their Protestant friends or family usually just run into a brick wall. They rattle off the talking points that they learned in confirmation class, like that the Greek vocabulary and grammar used in John chapter 6 means that Jesus intended us to literally eat his body and drink his blood or that the Old Testament Passover meal is a foreshadowing of the New Testament Eucharist, or that in celebrating the Eucharist, the priest is acting in persona Christi, and so on and so on. Most of the time, none of those points even crack the Protestant's wall, much less open a hole in it. Our arguments just bounce right off. In fact, the Protestant often looks at the Catholic like the Catholic is insane, or or responds by changing the subject to the Bible, or salvation by faith, or personal relationships with Jesus, or whatever. The Catholic and the Protestant often just talk past each other. Now, in my life as a convert, I've been on both sides of this debate. And while I have changed sides because I've come to believe that the Catholic doctrines, including the catechesis class talking points, are all true, in practice, they're not often persuasive 
to Protestants. You see, true and persuasive are not always the same thing. For example, consider all the arguments that you had with your friends or family or coworkers the last couple of years about COVID-19. I mean, both sides rattled off facts and statistics and arguments. We'd share links to articles to back up our points. Question, how persuasive was most of that? Instead of convincing them, your talking points often just entrenched the other person into their position and maybe embittered the relationship. Now, I am not saying that truth is relative or that there are multiple valid perspectives on the Eucharist. I firmly believe that the Catholic position is true and the Protestant position is false. But when it comes to evangelization or apologetics, the standard Catholic talking points are not usually effective because they argue from the wrong direction. They start with explaining the Eucharist within the framework of a Catholic worldview without first tackling the assumptions and the values of the Protestant worldview. So think back to all of those arguments with your friends or family or coworkers about COVID or about abortion or climate change or politics or whatever. All of us see the data through the lens of our assumptions and our values. Our worldviews cause us to pick and choose data that makes sense within our worldviews, and we ignore information that doesn't make sense. It's often just an unconscious bias. We don't really see the data that doesn't make sense within our worldview. It's incomprehensible. It's nonsense. But effective apologetics and evangelization has to tackle the Protestant worldview, all of the values that it just assumes without examination to be true. In my own conversion, my Protestant worldview was gradually replaced by a Catholic worldview. And as that happened, the particular Catholic teachings on matters like the Eucharist or Mary started to make sense to me. As the framework through which I look at the data changed, I began to see data points that were previously sort of invisible to me, or I began to see them in a new light. So, why do Protestants reject Catholic teaching on the Eucharist? Well, because those doctrines are incomprehensible or impossible nonsense within the Protestant worldview. Now, what are these assumptions and values that rule out Catholic Eucharistic doctrines? Well, the reformers of the 16th century very helpfully gave us a list, the five solas. Now, sola is the Latin word for alone. So, the Protestant Reformation was based on five premises that used the word alone. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Let's quickly run through those. In Protestant theology, grace alone means that our entire salvation, from beginning to end, is nothing but a free gift from God. In fact, because we are hopelessly lost in sin, that grace is almost alien to us. It's deposited into our account. We don't contribute or even cooperate with it. Our prayers, our devotions, our faithfulness, our good works, 
or participation in the sacraments, none of that counts for or adds anything to our salvation. Faith alone means that the only way by which we receive this gift of amazing and undeserved grace is through faith, by believing the good news that Jesus died and rose again to give us this grace and is now our Lord and Savior. God doesn't require us to do anything to be saved except believe. Scripture alone means that the Bible is the only authoritative source of Christian truth. Unlike Catholicism, there's no apostolic tradition. The church has no teaching authority in and of itself. All church leaders can do is teach and unpack the Bible. So, if a doctrine can't be explicitly found in the Bible, if there's no passage that clearly and definitively proves it, it can't be true. And it's probably false teaching that corrupts the faithful. Christ alone not only means that Jesus is the only source of our salvation, but that he's the only authority in the church, and that all of our worship, prayer, and devotion can be directed only toward him. That means no priests, bishops, popes, or saints stand between us and Jesus or mediate his grace to us. And his sacrifice for us was a one-time event, not reenacted on altars and Catholic masses every day. To the glory of God alone means that we do not honor saints or popes or call our pastors father or build beautiful churches full of art, all that distracts us from giving all honor and all praise to God alone. Churches should be plain. And its leaders should be plain servants whose primary purpose is to preach and teach from the Bible and to call the lost to believe in what is taught from the Bible and to be baptized and to exercise discipline among the faithful. Now, even evangelical Protestants who might not be able to rattle this list off the top of their heads, they all still hold these assumptions. because. These assumptions are the very structure of the Protestant worldview. And within that worldview, they render Catholic doctrines, including the doctrine of the Eucharist, incomprehensible. If we are saved by grace alone and faith alone, then why do we need all of these elaborate sacraments? They can't add anything to our salvation that Christ hasn't already gifted to us. If Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, the perfect Passover lamb, then why does it need to be reenacted on a Catholic altar? If we are saved by Christ alone, then why do we need consecrated altars and priests? Isn't Jesus enough? Why not go directly to him instead of through the church or through saints? And doesn't all of this elaborate ritual distract us from giving glory and honor to God alone? And where does the Catholic Church get all of these Eucharistic doctrines anyway? They aren't explicitly taught in the Bible. Even if Jesus does make a cryptic reference in John 6 to consuming his body and blood, which, by the way, Protestant scholars argue is a metaphor, All of the mumbo-jumbo of the Mass is nowhere to be found in the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul, which give 
explicit instructions for the new churches that were being established by the apostles. In the passages where Paul does mention the proper use of the Lord's Supper, he says nothing about all of the elaborate nonsense that Catholics have piled onto it. Now, the Protestant reformers of the 16th century argued that the church had become hopelessly corrupt. It had made itself rich by making itself necessary by inventing unnecessary doctrines and rituals. They argued that the Eucharist was a prime example, that what Jesus has intended to be a simple remembrance of his sacrifice had been hijacked by Rome so that it now required expensive altars and expensive churches consecrated by priests who were all ordained and controlled by wealthy bishops that robbed the people with tithes and taxes and fees, and all of it controlled by a pope who lived in an opulent palace in Rome like some pagan emperor meddling in politics. Protestants still argue that Catholic Eucharistic doctrines are elaborate and unnecessary nonsense that's been invented to empower and enrich the clergy and hierarchy, controlling ordinary Catholics by making them afraid that they'll go to hell unless they believe the mumbo-jumbo and jump through all the hoops. And so, in the Reformation, the Protestants took over Catholic churches and cathedrals. They stripped the altars of relics and adornment. They shoved them to the side and they made them remembrance tables. And they replaced them with pulpits from which the Bible alone would be preached. Now, given all of that, can you see why simply rattling off basic catechesis about the Eucharist, which is true, doesn't often persuade Protestants? I mean, you can tell them that Jesus tells the disciples to eat him in John 6. You can tell them that the Jewish Passover foreshadowed the Eucharist and that the priest acts in the person of Christ. And the Protestant is just going to reply to you, yeah, so what? We do eat his body and blood, but in faith. Christ was the perfect Passover lamb, and that's why the sacrifice doesn't need to be reenacted or recreated or whatever it is that you Catholics say is happening in the Mass. Oh, and by the way, Christ doesn't need any priest to act in his place. You see, your arguments are just going to bounce off your Protestant friend until your Protestant friend starts to question his or her assumptions in the five solas. Why and how can that possibly happen? What can crack the Protestant worldview? What can, what can shatter the confidence that they place in the five solas? Well, there are a lot of ways that that can happen. But generally, we come to know God through his three transcendental properties. Truth, goodness, and beauty. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that not only are these three inherent qualities of God, they're also three pathways to Him. Because if we discover something that's true and we follow it back to its source, it always leads us to God. If we discover something that's good and we follow it back to its source, it always leads us to God. If we discover something that's beautiful, and we follow it back to its source, it always leads us to God. Now, some Protestants come to accept the Catholic doctrines of the Eucharist by the way of truth, through discussion and debate and 
reading and study. Some Catholics in their life challenge their understanding of the Eucharist and help them to re-examine the five solas. The Catholic might be a friend or a catechist or a teacher or an author or a podcaster. But other Protestants come to accept the Catholic doctrines of the Eucharist because they've been struck by the, the good that it does in the lives of people or the, the goodness of the priests who celebrate it. And as they pursue that goodness, they come to question their assumptions about Christianity and the church. And other Protestants have come to accept the Catholic doctrines of the Eucharist because they've been deeply moved by the, the beauty of the Mass and the church, the beauty of the church's sacred spaces, the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of Eucharistic adoration, the beauty of worship in the lives of the faithful. And over time, that beauty begins to overshadow their confidence in Protestant doctrines that, well, seem thin and unsubstantial in comparison. Now, with all of that being said, let's touch on some of the particular arguments that Protestants use to reject Catholic teaching on the Eucharist. First, some Protestants argue that Jesus suffered once and once only. They'll point to passages in the book of Romans, for example, like chapter 5, verse 12, and they'll argue that while Christ's death on the cross won us a victory, his death was, in a sense, a triumph of sin and evil, of Satan over Christ. You see, they would argue that Jesus volunteered to, in a sense, lose a battle to win the war. But once the war was won, there was and is no reason to reenact or recreate or celebrate it. They argue that Catholics in the Mass are celebrating, in a sense, Satan's victory, as temporary and futile as that victory was. See, this is why, by the way, that Protestants have empty crosses instead of crucifixes with the suffering Christ on them. Because the victory came on Sunday morning when he rose. And so the cross is empty. For Satan's victory was a temporary illusion. His death won us the prize of everlasting life, but Christians should not celebrate his death, but his resurrection. Now, for the Catholic, countering that argument means taking on the specifics, the nitty-gritty details of multiple biblical passages, and I, I just don't have the time to do that here. But suffice it to say that as Catholics, we don't celebrate his death in the way that Protestants say that we do. Instead, we participate in his eternal sacrifice, being united to him in his death so that we can become united to him in the risen life. Second, Protestants argue that when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he intended that to be a metaphor or a symbol or perhaps a spiritual sign, but he never intended it to be taken literally. The Catholic Church, they argue, has misread or abused this scriptural passage. Now, this is the point where Catholics usually say something like, I was taught that reputable biblical scholars have shown that the Greek vocabulary and grammar in John chapter 6, where Jesus commands us to consume his flesh and blood, indicates that he meant it to be taken literally. And then the Protestant says, well, I was taught that even more reputable biblical scholars, who, by the way, take the Bible seriously as the only authoritative source of Christian truth, 
have shown that Catholic scholars are wrong. Now, unless you and your friend are New Testament scholars who can read Greek, this is basically a no-win argument in which you both say, no way, and yeah way, and no way, and yeah way. And my scholars are better than your scholars. Because while I've come to firmly believe that the Catholic arguments on this point are true, the Protestants have well-thought-out counter-arguments, which at one time I found convincing. In the end, what it comes down to is an argument from authority. My sources are more reliable than your sources. It's not unlike the argument around the Greek word in Luke chapter 1, translated as full of grace, which the Archangel Gabriel addresses the Virgin Mary with at the Annunciation. Catholics have the right argument about that point, but it's an argument from authority about the verb tense of an obscure Greek word. Protestants have counterarguments, which, by the way, I no longer believe, but between you and your friend, it just often amounts to a shouting match. I think the better way to address arguments like this is by referencing the context of the whole scriptures. Now, I've done an episode or two where I unpack the Catholic Marian doctrines in light of the entire Bible, and I think that's often more persuasive to Protestants. And you have to do something like that with the Eucharist. But in the end, I think a stronger approach is to look at the ancient teachings of the Church. Because the Church, from its earliest years, understood the Eucharist to be the real body and blood of our Lord. The Protestant has to argue that the Holy Spirit allowed the Church to live in error for 1,500 years, for three-quarters of its life. And trust me, that's hard for the Protestant to defend. In the end, I couldn't defend it. Third, Protestants argue that there is no biblical reason that we need to eat the real flesh and blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Corinthians to remember Jesus and the Lord's Supper and to take it very seriously. But, Protestants argue, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul never says anything about it being the real flesh and blood. And they would argue that it isn't necessary that it be the real flesh and blood because God can still use it as a means of spiritual grace without the miracle of transubstantiation. If it were necessary, they argue, then Paul would have said that. Okay, this amounts to an argument from silence. But as we saw in the five solas, the Protestant believes that only things that are explicitly taught in the Bible have any authority. Now, our Catholic response is twofold. First, the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 has to be read in the context of the rest of the Bible. And when it is, the Catholic understanding emerges and becomes more clear. Second, we understand the teaching of the apostles through the apostolic tradition that they left behind. They didn't write down everything that they said. And when we look at the church and the generations that immediately followed the apostles, carried on by those who were mentored by the apostles, we see what would become the Catholic doctrines of the Eucharist already emerging. Fourth, Protestants argue that it is impossible for Christ to be bodily present in thousands of Catholic churches around the world at the same time. Okay, I don't take this objection seriously, and I didn't take it seriously when I was a Protestant. The worldview of the five solas is what renders Catholic teaching on the Eucharist incomprehensible. But once the Protestant gets past that, this thing about Christ appearing on all the altars and all the world at the same time is really pretty small ball. The answer is it's a miracle. 
No serious Protestant believes that the resurrected Christ isn't mystically present wherever believers gather or for any Christian that's in prayer or in need. If he wants to, and if it's fitting and necessary for him to do so, then he can be there because he's God. So, to wind this down, how do you respond to your Protestant friend or family member who rejects Catholic teaching on the Eucharist? Well, first, by all means, be prepared with those standard catechetical talking points. As I've said several times now, those talking points are true. And as St. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Just don't always count on them being persuasive without giving more background or context. Second, be prepared by understanding the Protestant mindset and having some means to engage in discussion with their objections. Now, you can get some coaching by, well, listening to this podcast and the conversations that I have on here or from other Catholic resources. If your Protestant friend is open, perhaps share a link to a podcast episode or to a YouTube video or loan them a book or whatever. You may not be a trained evangelist or apologist, and it's rare that you're going to argue them into seeing the Catholic perspective right away any more than you're going to change their mind about COVID or abortion or politics. But the important thing is to engage with them, to start and keep a friendly conversation going, even if it unwinds over years. And third, as they teach aspiring novelists and screenwriters, show, don't tell. Introduce your Protestant friend to the goodness and the beauty of the Eucharist. If you can, if they're willing, take them to a Mass. Let them see the wonder and the grace and the majesty of the liturgy for themselves, especially if you take them to a Mass where the beauty of the space and liturgy are the best examples of Catholic tradition. Or let them see the goodness of Holy Communion celebrated in a church or a community full of love and grace and virtue. One of the experiences that put a crack into my Protestant wall was one time going to a monastery and watching the Eucharist celebrated in an atmosphere that I I could only describe as profound goodness. To close, let me just say this. Because the Eucharist is central to Catholicism, Asking a Protestant to buy into Catholic Eucharistic teaching is essentially to ask them to buy into Catholicism. And that's not going to be a five-minute conversation. It's going to be a a journey or a, a story that unfolds over months or even years. And it's going to meander in and around and through all sorts of theological assumptions and biblical passages and practical objections. When it's helpful, pull in those of us who have a vocation for teaching and explaining these things. As Pope Francis likes to say, you can accompany them on that journey, but you can't lead it or direct it. The Holy Spirit will lead. Be an instrument of the Spirit, a facilitator of that conversation, a a friend on that journey. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit ConsideringCatholicism.com.
www.consideringcatholicsubscribe.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com. <laughs>